Charles here. Charles here. Welcome to the 61st episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Season 4 started off with a slew of episodes featuring graduate students and early career academics as a part of our Emerging Scholar series. Indeed, submissions to be included in the Emerging Scholar series have been rising rapidly over the last year. I am proud of the work we are putting in to expand the Big Rhetorical Podcast, our audience, and the disciplines of rhetoric and composition, which is evidenced in this increase in submissions. Yet, I think that the state of higher education amidst a global pandemic and the state of the humanities, if we go farther back than the pandemic, is pushing scholars to seek out new ways to amplify their work. Ways like this podcast. I've not talked openly about being on the job market. Who wants to talk about that? But it's not a secret that the prospects aren't great for any of us. So, the first five episodes of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Season 4 were Emerging Scholars Series episodes to purposefully amplify the work of junior scholars, and we have more planned for later this season. Originally scheduled for 10 episodes, Season 4 is now going to be a bit longer to include more scholars who want to be a part of the Emerging Scholars Series, and I could not be more excited. If you are on the job market, thinking about a career change, or just want to talk about your research, please reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Season 5 is filling up fast, and so send us an email soon to be included in the fall. Since the first five episodes of the Big Rhetorical Podcast were Emerging Scholar Series episodes, that means this one is not. Today... I talk with Dr. Matthew Bodie from the University of North Georgia. And so what I discovered was, as I wrote in the, in the end of the book, an actual uh, fill-in-the-blank piece of paper college application that required students in a couple of lines, and this was in the fall of 1970, to tell the university why they wanted to come to this school specifically if they were out-of-state students that wanted to come to this school. Now, if that doesn't really um, get your attention, the context very much matters. Of course, May 1970, the two major events, uh, one lesser known, but the, the, the shooting at Kent State University, which was the anniversary of 1970 this year, it's May 4th. 11 days after May 4th, there was also a shooting at Jackson State, which is an HBCU uh, in Mississippi, and that's the lesser known. And so, in uh, response to that, if you did not know, there were thousands of protests around the country, many universities such, such down, there was violence, there was burning and a few, but it had a tremendous impact on campus and tremendous impact on the field of composition studies. And uh, so over the summer and into the fall, administrators, specifically in Southern universities, decided that they needed to figure out or to weed out the troublemakers. And that's specifically a word that the, the, the other items in that college admissions essay folder said that they were using this question, why do you want to come here instead of a school closer to your home to weed out the agitators? 
Dr. Bodie is an assistant professor of rhetoric and composition at the University of North Georgia in Gainesville. He teaches first-year composition and courses in professional writing. He published his first book, Speaking of Evil, in November 2018 with Rowan and Littlefield. His new book, May 1970, is published through Intermezzo. His research interests include rhetorical theory and its relationship to religion. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Matthew Bodie. So you're at the University of, of North Georgia. How long, yes. have you, how long have you been there? I am uh, in my sixth year. Um, so I was uh, tenured and promoted um, starting this year uh, okay. as associate professor. Uh, Excellent. I, Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, so, yes, I'm at the University of North Georgia. We are a regional uh, institution in uh, Northeast Georgia. We have five campuses. Um, Gainesville is the largest in students, um, about seven, 8,000. Uh, Dahlonega is the, the other main campus. It's the primary residence um, athletic campus, uh, residence halls, um, but we had three others. Um, and we serve about 20,000 students total. Um, you know, a lot of them are, are traditional college students who like dorms and athletics, but on my campus, it's a commuter campus. Uh, and so I get a lot of part-time workers, um, some uh, non-traditional age students. Uh, we have a fairly good size military uh, veteran population and a fairly good size um, uh, minority, specifically Hispanic uh, population. Um, and in the university system of Georgia, we are in the third uh, tier. So we're, we're an access institution, which means that, um, you know, we um, um, are delegated by the, by our charter to, to uh, educate as many people as we can. Uh, we are not the UGA or and Georgia Tech of the state. What kind of what kind of classes do you teach? It may be best to just answer what kind of classes are you teaching this semester. But um, well, I, I teach a lot of first year composition. Obviously, uh, we have lots of courses in that. Uh, there's two main ones that we are doing. Uh, I also teach in the professional writing uh, or writing and publication concentration, is what we call it here. Um, so currently, with that, I'm teaching a sophomore level. Um, class called Introduction to Professional Writing. Um, and it is basically a survey of what professional writing is and what you can do with it. And I have them do different types of non-text-based assignments with some text-based stuff. They you know, have to do an infographic and they have to record something for an audio essay. And um, they have to um, do a genre analysis of, of some other things. Um, and then also there's a... Um, uh, there's three sophomore level gatekeeping classes, which you have to get a B in to go on into the major. Uh, one of them is a grammar class, one of them is a literature class, and one of them is the writing class called uh, uh, Intermediate Composition. It's not much in the title, but I teach that. And it's a, a genre-based class. We're wanting to introduce them to different nonfiction genres. Um, and so there's many different ways that people teach that, but I primarily teach that as a, as a memoir personal essay class. Um, so we read a bunch of those, we do some analysis of those, and then I have them write their own. Um, and then uh, usually there's some sort of um, big essay at the end. Um, last semester, um, I did, uh, I changed it up a bit. 
and, and said that the class would focus on the, the, the uh, central issue in the election. Uh, so we did uh, a memoir based upon a central issue. We read uh, Tanashi Coates' memoir, which obviously has a lot of you know, social political issues. They had to write their own. They had to write an editorial <clears throat> based upon that issue and then write a personal essay uh, based upon their reaction to the election outcome and the how it might affect that issue. Um, those and then, and then they also do a genre analysis of editorial. So there's five assignments. Um, I'm teaching that class again in the fall. I currently thought about what what topic I might center it around. Uh, and there's also uh, some uh, upper level classes. Um, is a rhetorical composition theory uh, intro class I've taught once. Um, <clears throat> there's a multimodal class that the other um, retcomp person teaches. And um, there's, I teach the introduction to professional writing, and then there's a uh, upper level class called advanced professional writing, which another professor does that. Um, but um, that's mainly what I, what I teach. I, I'm struck specifically by, by the, the topic of teaching memoirs, because that's something that I like to do when I was teaching first year comp. So I just have to pick your brain a little bit. You mentioned Coates, but what are some of the other texts, other memoirs that you like to uh, analyze in that class and, and why? Um, yeah, so I, I wanted to choose two. One that was quite out of their uh, I won't say comfort zone, but it's quite out of their experience. So to Tanashi Coates, obviously grew up in inner city Baltimore, and my kids are a bunch of white kids from the country. Um, and so I paired that with uh, Rick Bragg um, is a Southern writer, and he wrote a series of books about his life growing up poor in Alabama, which I'm sure you're aware of. Yeah. Um, and so I pair those, um, and we talk about, you know, obviously the genre of the memoir, but, but what are the themes that connect those and how does he, how do, how do both use scenes and stories and, and elements of the genre to, to tell their, their story. And basically they are speaking to audiences that are totally unaware or have some perhaps stereotype of their own self. And so how do they manage those? Um, and so the, the question I also ask my students is, you know, you're 18, you're 21 or whatever, you know, do you think you can write a memoir? Do you have, you think it's worth uh, sinking. And so a lot of them struggle with like, what do I write about? Um, but we do come up with some scenes that, that deal with mainly um, perhaps why they're an English major, why they decided to switch their major to English. Um, but also some of them have had some, some traumatic things happen to them. I mean, I say directly, I'm not looking for you to bury your soul or tell us things you don't want, but you know, if you feel something you need to say, then this is the place to say it. That sounds like a really fascinating class. I might have to reach out for a syllabus after our chat. Okay. Um, so are these classes online? What's the delivery method for you guys at UNG? Um, currently, uh, under COVID regulations last fall, we had a lot of um, hybrid classes where up to 75% of the class sessions could be um, online. Uh, the university system decided that it was okay to allow more in person. So we're under a mandate to have 50% of our class sessions in person or at least meeting in person once a week, uh, which has per proved perplexing uh, mm -hmm. to many of us. Uh, and many of us are finding creative ways to, um, we'll say not be on campus as much. Um, and um, so yes, they, they are designated hybrid at the moment. Uh, but uh, a lot of them uh, are meeting more in person this semester than last. Uh, you can think about the, the, you know, the requirement of meeting one time in person 
even with the social distancing groups, like again, if you have a certain number of people in your class and only that your room can hold so many, you have to meet with each group one time in person. So that causes some people a lot of headaches, but it, yeah. it does seem to work well for like a biology lab. You can do the biology lectures online and then come in for that lab in person, but English is a bit different. So yeah. um, I, I've been staggering. Uh, I had uh, was in person for the first week and then trying to do online for the next couple of weeks and then come back in person and go back and forth. I can only imagine how complex that really is, especially in your position. I know that you've got a new addition to the family. So, uh, yeah, so that actually helps a lot to be at home um, and I can try to get some work done uh, with with our new uh, child. Um, so she has uh, been locked away in our house for quite a while. <laughs> So full disclosure for the listeners, we've actually chatted before. And when we chatted before, our primary uh, conversation was about speaking of evil rhetoric and the responsibility to and for language, which was a book that you wrote was published by Lexington Books in 2019. So I do want to give you just a second, an opportunity to tell us a little bit about that project, maybe like a short elevator spiel kind of plug thing. And then I really want to dive into your newer book for sure, May 1970. Okay. Uh, Speaking of equal uh, was my uh, dissertation project as a graduate student. Uh, and I wanted to answer the, the, the question of what's the relationship between evil and rhetoric. Um, you know, I had some interest in evil bef- before coming a graduate student in um, rhetoric. Um, and so I knew I wanted to write something about that, but I wasn't sure how to make it a rhetorical topic. Um, it's very a philosophical, religious topic. But to make it a rhetorical one, it has something to do with, you know, not just um, uh, itself as a, re- as a rhetorical object, right? What do we call evil? But uh, my book argues that language is uh, infected with evil. That is, we cannot get away from it. Uh, so when I say speaking of evil, I'm talking about speaking about evil, but I'm also saying we speak evil um, because of what I suggested is the way in which we uh, name things. Um, and that comes from a, a line or two in a Walter Benjamin essay about naming, and he specifically writes about Genesis 3 and the fall uh, in, in that chapter and how language fell. And, and basically the idea is that language entered uh, uh, evil entered into language at that point, and we can't get out of it. Um, so uh, in the different chapters, there's chapters on Genesis 3, but there's also a chapter on, on moments where evil is used, and not just how it is talked about, but how it is talked about as part of language. So there's a chapter on Isocrates, who uses it a lot, um, at least it's translated evil as a lot. Um, there's a chapter on Erasmus, and he wrote about uh, evil in language, and there's a chapter on September 11th, when evil was, was talked about, but also um, the people I use in that chapter talk about how evil infects our language. Uh, and there's a chapter on World War II. Um, specifically, I, I use uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who also uh, was a German pastor who talked about that as well. So uh, in that book, I try to answer the question, what do we do because of this evil in language? And that's the subtitle, is we have a responsibility to keep language open and to keep it free, moving, and not uh, uh, name things in such a way as to freeze them. And that is the rhetorical invention part of the book. And that's sort of what I end the last chapter on, is, is how rhetoric can do more with rhetorical invention. Just from knowing a little bit about your work, I know that religious rhetoric is is a, something you're interested in. Like it's a theme throughout your different projects. So I, I just have to ask, when was when did you first become interested in religious rhetoric? Does it does is it rooted in your fascination with evil? Is it 
trace farther back than that or so mm. or something what's your fascination with re- religious rhetoric why do you think that's important um you know as as a religious person i i do have uh, spiritual leanings and and guidance and uh that has been a part of my life and so coming into graduate school i wasn't sure how to connect that to my work um mm. there are a series of of uh, religious people who don't connect their academic work. I kind of separated from that and I didn't want to do that. And so I was looking for something that could connect to that. And so um, when I uh, happened to go to Europe, uh, the semester I started before I started uh, my graduate work in rhetoric and composition, I went to a concentration camp and went to some other places. And so that kind of just brought the idea of evil to me. Mm. Um, And there are a series of, of rhetorical uh, canonical texts that we use that talk about evil or people who write about evil. There's obviously the famous one about Hitler's battle um, by uh, Kenneth Burke. And so I started reading those. And then I realized in some manners that religious rhetoric is not um, a well trodden ground. Um, yeah. uh, there was actually was an essay, I think in 2002 two or three, like uh, called the return of religious rhetoric that some people were starting to return to it as a topic. Um, and so then I picked up a book from 2010 about religious rhetoric. Um, and so I figured that, that there's something out there that's being done and I wanted to add to that. Um, and my particular uh, rhetorical interest in rhetorical invention uh, mainly came from my dissertation advisor, John Bauer, who is also into that. And so I wanted to connect that to um, the work on evil. Um, and then another uh, professor of mine introduced me to Walter Benjamin and, and his work, um, especially the Genesis 3 essay. I forget the title of it, but um, nonetheless, so they started all coming together. So I had, if you will, three legs on a stool. I had evil, I had rhetoric, and I had, um, oh, what's the third one, basically? I was going to do something on how public intellectual deal with that, but I kind of slipped that away. I mean, all mm. the people I mentioned in my, in my book are kind of public intellectuals, but yeah. I needed to focus on just the two. And so the question became how, how is evil uh, part of the language? So yeah, I'm, I'm trying to uh, marry the personal and the professional. And so I didn't want to be, um, you know, com- compartmentalized. Yeah, I appreciate that approach. And I, I think that um, that sounds like a fascinating book. I'm going to have to promote a little bit during our, our, um, our promotions for the for the episode. Um, I, so okay, so I spent some time with your new project, or I'm sorry, your most recently published book, yeah. uh, May 1970, which takes a look at that specific time in higher education and its impact on the field, the discipline of of, of composition and and, and extensions. Um, why May 1970? Well, uh, to be honest with you, I'm more of a rhetoric than a composition guy. And okay. so, um, you know, I, it, it, it's, it's been a project I have worked on for the last 10 years. Um, it started in a class, a uh, graduate class, I think one of my first, it was the you know, history of composition studies. And I really had no idea what I was getting into. And the first day, uh, Professor Byron Hawk there at South Carolina goes around the room and says, what project do you want to work on this semester? And I was like, oh my God, thank God he didn't ask me first because I have no idea. So by the time he got to me, I was like, what am I going to say? And at that time, um, a friend of mine um, was um, had um, a, a sister who was much younger her applying to college and she was writing her college application. And I had helped her write her college application. And I thought, 
well, that's writing. Okay, I'll say that. So I told him and I, I was going to work on a thing about college application essays. And so I was like, okay, what do I do with that? And so the class became about archival research in compositions and what are the archives that we go to. And so I went down to the University of South Carolina archives, the presidential, you know, uh, documents that they have in their old library. And there was a happens to be a folder named college application essay in the 70s. And I thought, well, my, I got to go read that. Right. And so what I discovered was, as I wrote in the, in the end of the book, an actual uh, fill in the blank piece of paper college application that required students in in a couple of lines. And this was in the fall of 1970 uh, to tell the university why they wanted to come to this school specifically if they were out of state students that wanted to come to the school. Now, if that doesn't really um, get your attention, the context very much matters. Of course, May 1970, the two major events, uh, one lesser known, but the, the, the shooting at Kent State University, which was the anniversary of 1970 this year. And that was uh, <clears throat> May 11th, I wanna say, or May 7th, I get confused, but, um, and I'm sorry, it's May 4th, I'm sorry. 11 days after May 4th, there was also a shooting at Jackson State, which is an HBCU uh, in Mississippi. And that's the lesser known one. And so in uh, response to that, if you did not know, there were thousands of protests around the country, many universities such, such down, there was violence, there was burning at a few, um, but it had a tremendous impact on campus and tremendous impact on the field of composition studies. And uh, so over the summer and into the fall, administrators specifically in Southern universities decided that they needed to figure out or to weed out the troublemakers. And that's specifically a word um, that the, the, the other uh, items in that college admissions essay folder said that they were using this question, why do you wanna come here instead of a school closer to your home to weed out the agitators, uh, people who might cause another uh, response. Specifically at the University of South Carolina, there was a sit-in, uh, a takeover of the student union, a, a board of trustees meeting hmm. um, during this time. And there were a lot of people arrested and those arrests were eventually thrown out, but they did not want that to happen again. Uh, and two years earlier, there was a shooting at, at uh, Orange and um, Orangeburg at uh, South Carolina State, which is another HBCU in Orangeburg called the Orangeburg uh, Massacre. And so they did not want that to happen again. And so they found a way in which to, to try to address uh, these students from basically not coming to campus. So that's a very small thing. And I, I tried to write that story. How did the first ever college application essay come to be and why does that matter to composition studies? And, and frankly, all the people that I sent it to journal-wise were not interested. They didn't think it was a, a genre that we cared about or that we could teach or, you know, because it really didn't affect the classroom. So I needed a way to connect it to the classroom. And I hunted around, I couldn't find anything. And then come 2012, which um, um, I didn't realize, I didn't find the book until even a couple of years after that. Uh, the book uh, that I mentioned in the introduction uh, called Kent Letters right. uh, by um, Barbara Adke. Uh, um, she was an instructor, a first year mm -hmm. composition instructor at Kent State. And she wrote a book uh, collected letters from her students that she asked for after the campus was closed and she was ordered to, you know, find a way to finish the semester. And she wrote to her students saying, anything you send back to me will suffice as a final exam. And she made it into a book and published it in 2012. So then I actually had writing from students in a composition course at Kent State after the shooting. So the question becomes how to combine those two items. 
And so then the question becomes, what do they have to do with the history of composition that was going on at that point? It, it, as you well know, the, the composition studies discipline or the composition part of rhetoric and composition didn't really start in America until the 60s. Um, and so in May 1970, uh, we have process pedagogy trying to start. We have some other things trying to get off the ground. But, but oddly, when I started reading the histories that we have, no one mentions May 1970. Like no one mentions the Kent State shootings in their history. And, and I get that it's a history of ideas. It's a history of theories. But at the same time, there are a few people that mention political events and how they affected composition. Uh, clearly, the series of assassinations in the 60s affected the classroom. The, the protests on campus, the Vietnam War protests affected what people wrote about. And so what really tied it together, what really got me that full book uh, at Intermezzo, which they were, I was greatly appreciated that they were publishing it, um, was the second book that I talk about um, was a reader uh, from um, was it Northern Illinois, one of the Illinois universities, it's not Illinois State, but it was a reader put together for 1971 composition classes, and it was still listed in essays, and much like the readers we have, they made some comments about it, and of course there were essays concerning uh, the events at Kent State, and so then I had multiple ways in which to get back to the history of composition studies and talk about how May 1970, the, the two events, affected uh, composition studies and specifically process um, pedagogy. And so uh, my original drafts, like I said, were rejected by everybody because it mainly focused on South Carolina. I even, I even tried non-rhetorical, non-composition journals. I tried to just send it to the South Carolina History Journal. They didn't want it. Um, I tried it different ways. And, I, and honestly, yes, it's been 10 years since I've been working on this. And I think probably at least 10 different rejections. Oh, wow. So when Intermezzo started, they haven't been around that long. Um, I thought, okay, this is an interesting project. As you know, it is... Um, a, a website, a, an e-publication that publishes things that are too long for journal articles and too short for books. Well, my May 1970 thing is 22,000 words, which is in between exactly that, right? It's about three journal articles, four journal articles, or maybe half a book. I think the speaking of evil book was 50,000 words. Um, so I thought, hmm, I'll send it to them. And, and they had the, I had the parts and I, I had a very good draft, I'll say so, but they wanted specifically me to expand it a couple of thousand words to put the uh, context more of the 70s in it. So there's actually a, a section about the, you know, what politically was happening, the Vietnam War, the music, and try to just set the scene for the 70s. And uh, very helpful to me, the editor, uh, Jeff Rice, had just written uh, an article about the, the music of the 60s and how it helped composition studies. So he was interested in the project. Um, and so I sent it in in 2019 um, and uh, they agreed to publish it in, in late 2019. So it's before Christmas. Oh, so that's great. And I said, they'll get back to me. And so um, by April of 2020, which is like two months into COVID, they had not done so and I, and I I didn't want to you know push them because they said it would it would be it, it would be up right away but it had been four months so I emailed him and said hey what's going on you know I, I, I sounded a little impatient I actually emailed him to apologize like I should, probably shouldn't have sent that I know you guys are busy uh, he said yeah you know it, the people are doing with the family and stuff but he got me in touch with their um, their their uh, copy editor and he helped me um, well actually helped me but he created the cover of the, of the ebook 
there. Um, and if I remember correctly, that is um, a you know graphic that he made with the in the background is uh, partially seen the cover of the federal government's report, the Commission on Student Violence, I think it was called, that Nixon initiated. Um, and it's a long report about Kent State and Jackson State and why it happened and why, why it, you know, it, it should be paid attention to. Um, and so that's what you can see in the cover. But that is how the project came together. It, it's been a long time. Like I said, I'm not a composition person. So I, I think, honestly, this is my first ever composition publication, if you will. Um, but I, I, I stayed with it mainly because I, I, I had this piece of paper from South Carolina and I knew it was important, but I had to find a way in. And then I found that mm -hmm. book. And if you read that book, Kent Letters, it, it's like $12 on the internet. And, and she's a, I talked with actually Barbara Backey on, uh, Aki on the phone, um, uh, another roundabout story. So when I got a draft and I knew it was gonna be published, I sent her a copy of it. Like I found a, a, a mailing address of her online she lived out in new mexico now and i sent her like a full like envelope of it here's what i'm planning to publish let me know what you think um and, and she's a little bit older now so she didn't use email a lot but she she sent me back a phone number um and i called her and i talked for about 10 minutes and, and she i mean it's very lucid and i'm not saying she just she, she's just old right and but she was like yes you are on this and people need to hear this again people need to keep talking about it and of course as i kind of make the point in the book it's very relevant today, not just mm -hmm. to students, but to instructors and how they want to deal with um, issues today. And that's sort of, I think, what got Intermezzo uh, most interested is it connects to the composition practices today, because yeah. much more we are having to deal with, with outside the classroom, if you will, but they're also impacting the classroom. Um, so that's how it came together. Um, and I stayed with it because I knew I had something there. I just couldn't find a way to put it together. I mean, we've all been rejected multiple times by different places. Um, but I had to find a way in which to connect all those parts. And Intermezzo like wanted more words, like wanted a couple thousand more words. And I think that that's what brought it all brought it all together. Having read, you know, most of, of the of the book, uh, I'm glad you stuck with it. Perseverance. Heck yeah. like to join charles in the big rhetorical podcast the podcast is booking for next season now the big rhetorical podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond this record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric writing studies and technical communication as well as adjacent fields do you have a new book coming out are you hitting the job market this cycle the Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. 
follow the podcast on Facebook, or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. wrote of the Kent State situation, shooting, killings, that that, that moment remains deeply embedded in, in higher education's DNA. And the reason is because, as you write, the issues students protest today, questions of war, drugs, and police mirror those of 1970. How? Well, um, Obviously, the, the police elements changed a little bit. Of course, it was a protest of military and Vietnam's war in the 70s. But the Jackson State shooting was about local police who often, we'll say, harassed the Black students at Jackson State. And the, and the students, uh, we'll say, uh, responded in kind in different ways. But it was a local police shooting. It was a state police shooting uh, of Black people. And so one of the earlier reviewers that I, that I sent it to wanted me to focus in on that. Uh, and that the the disappearance of the Jackson State story was a lot like the um, non-acknowledgement of a black death now, especially mm-hmm. at the hands of police. Um, and so he wanted me to focus on that more. And, and that's, that's certainly a good point. Um, and, and the the trouble with talking about Jackson State is there's not a lot on it, right? There is one book about it that was basically a, a, a moment by moment. Um, summary of what happened during of course those few days. Even Jackson State itself uh, has had uh, memorials uh, wax and wane. They have a, a plaza now and then they do uh, celebrate the or honor the two dead there more now, but there wasn't a whole lot. Um, and so I contacted a professor there, an English professor who teaches first year composition and asked, does this ever come up in class? And he responded like, yeah, I actually assigned that topic as a list of topics for my composition class. So that 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 uh, got it to me pretty quickly, right? A, a professor at Jackson State trying to keep this in play. Um, and so um, th- there are places where this is more known and there are places where people pay attention to it more. Um, and I think what, what for me as a white person who watches the news and tries to keep up with it as well, especially at a, a primarily white school, what got me interested in, or what kept me interested in, at least the the shooting part was I was part of a campaign to uh, stop uh, what is called campus carry, which is allowed uh, concealed handguns on college campuses around the state. There are now 10 states that allow that by legislation or by lawsuits, and many more states are passing those bills. Um, And so I I helped out with that campaign in 2016 and 2017, and eventually the bill was passed, and it is law. You can do that here on public um, university campuses. And so uh, getting into the um, anti-gun violence movement and and thinking about that wanted me uh, or helped me keep with that story and specifically connect it to uh, today. Um, The last thing I will say is about the connections is that there are many professors trying to figure out how to um, connect the personal with the professional. Um, and so they're interested in anti-gun violence. They're interested in Black Lives Matters. They're interested in other, if you will, political things, but they're not sure how to bring that into the classroom for different reasons. 
Um, but uh, that same question, though, was the struggle of the professors in, in, in 1970. And what is fascinating about um, the, the Student Speaks Out, the other book that I mentioned in that, essay, in that book, is it was a collection of essays written by students, but the authors of that textbook were clearly not interested in the political ramifications of their student writing. They were very much interested in the rhetorical and the composition elements of the student writings, but they did not want um, their classroom to be a, um, a political site uh, opposed to how it is today. Um, and so I'm sure there are also people like that today. So it is, it's, a, it's still around, that tension is still around. One of the tensions that your book explores explicitly uh, through the lens of May 1970, that sounds weird, but I guess that's kind of what it is. Um, you write that, that May 1970 can shed more light on the struggle between authority and agency. In what ways? Well, you know, in composition studies, in teaching first-year composition and teaching uh, writing, we are well into student agency and students not just choosing their own topics, but really the student being the writer that we want to uh, encourage and um, help, not just teach and not just give them, um, uh, you know, the, the, the elements and say, go copy what we do or what copy these, these great writers do. So we are well into agency. But the, the other part of that was, was how the discipline, the area, the study, the institution, if you will, of composition studies started. It started with agency uh, by bringing politics into class and bringing student ideas and letting them explore their own interests. But at the same time, as composition studies grew, it grew into an authority, right? We have books, we have disciplines, we have journals, we have experts. We know how to teach writing, even if some people ignore that. Right. And so the tension became, how do you exercise that authority, teach that authority, be a professor in composition studies and also then want very much to um, I don't mean I don't want to use flip the classroom here, but but encourage student agency. And so the one line from that college application essay at South Carolina, please tell us in three lines why you want to come to school here and not a school closer to your home student agency, right? Tell us what you think. Yeah. Answer our question, which yeah. is authority, but it was a test, right? They, they noted that the students might not have been aware of that, but maybe right. they weren't, but it was a test. Say the right words, do it in the right way, and you get to come here. But of course, they had to open the door to agency to allow them to do that. I would have loved to see some actual responses to that, um, and I, I couldn't find the trail of that actual question. I know it appeared on at least one year's worth of admissions, but I couldn't find it after that. And they didn't have any you know, you know, copies of actual admissions files there. Um, but it is that tension, like um, write on your topic, write in the way, the genre you want, write in your own voice, but then I'm going to you know, um, give you some pointers or edit you or, or put you in another direction, right? Because I'm the expert on writing, right? And so as much as we, as professors of writing, want to talk about how we fail, how we reject, and how we might start things, and why writing is really difficult, and it is all that. They, as you well know, are also looking for us to tell them what to do, right? Right. And so it is. It is a personal tension with me. Like every time I sit down to read a student paper, like how much 
do I um, put my fingerprints on this, mm. right? Uh, to be honest with you, my student evaluations, sometimes to say, oh, all he does is edit our stuff, like, and it makes it into what he wants to hear. Okay, that's certainly something I can work on. But the, but the, uh, the another way of saying is that is, I'm just going to tell you the five steps to writing a memoir or the five steps or the five paragraph essay to writing this thing, and then you do it. They like that but they didn't want me to do, let me fix here what it is you, you did. And so it's very personal to me. I'm sure it's personal to all composition right. instructors. But then there's also a larger context of the institutionalized discipline of composition studies uh, was started in a time and an era where student agency, in fact, it was started with student agency, right? Write something and let's draft, let's look at it. Let's see how language develops for you. That is process pedagogy. But in some manners, we invented process pedagogy. It became our disciplinary authoritative thing. It's the thing that made us, right? And so there it is that, that university attention. We have writing programs, we have graduate programs, we have books, we have journals, we have all these things that give us authority then to go into a classroom and, and teach students writing. But at the same time, um, teaching writing by authority is, is um, well, it's teaching the five paragraph essay or it's uh, teaching um, what's the I'm trying to think of the I lost it now the the theory of writing before yeah. that um, um, current uh, current traditionalism right it was that right and so um, we have this new thing come in and it hasn't gone away the issues of May 1970 hasn't gone away for political and social and cultural and higher ed. The issues for composition studies have not gone away. Um, and so that's why you should return to it is yeah. to see how it was born and see how uh, it, it still affects people today. At the end of your book, you write that one conclusion that remains part of composition studies lore is that something ended that spring. What ended that spring and why? You know the the, the the narrative about about the Kent State was it, it was it, it ended the Vietnam War protests. Uh, the Vietnam War didn't end until several years after that, um, but it but it, it turned uh, it turned into Nixon um, and authority and law and order. And we hear that phrase now. At least we did from 2016 to 2020. Um, and what ended was protests. Um, there was a series of comments in different composition journals about how students had changed in the early 70s. They were more uh, complacent or weren't interested in all these protests. They were done with it. So if you can think about that same, um, gosh, um, um, relaxation or just like, you know, there's been so much of it. I don't want to do it anymore. We're talking about COVID now, right? Yeah. And we're talking about stuff that might happen on campus. It's just the the uh, impatience with it all. They just wanted to go back to taking classes, yeah. right? And 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 being told what to write. Um, so if you think about what ended, um, a lot of things for students ended, like um, the the composition journals that are called a, a back to basics, a return to basics approach, right? So what ended? Um, experimentation, um, uh, student agency, perhaps um, a lot of things ended in the in that in that period of years. Not just on the day of May fourth right, and May eleventh, right. but um, you know a lot of naivete about higher education ended that day. Um, and so you think about a lot of things, um, you know, that um, are bringing are bringing or 
are made to happen again. We're relearning those lessons now. So perhaps they're they're restarting and not and not having just ended. Where do the tragedies that Kent State, Jackson State fit into our discipline and maybe even higher education going forward? Uh, you know, I, I honestly, I, I don't know if those two events will, will impact higher education. Uh, again, Jackson State it, it was labeled the right. one, the Kent State you don't know about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly Kent State itself has um, kept that into play. And, and some people are aware of it. I don't know if it's commonly taught in U.S. history classes. Maybe it will eventually. Um, but there are several other events um, that that are like that. Um, we've obviously had mass shootings in recent years, some of them close to or on campus. Right. Um, and the notion of bringing guns on campus can only make that uh, more um, aware. Um, the I, I you know I, I pray there aren't any you know campus shootings and that would be the event that we recall. But what I'm what I'm getting at is the the tension there between authority and agency, or if you will, between administration and students, or between professors and students. Uh, there's not a much of divide there. But in that first category, that is, that is where we live. Um, you may not see it on your particular campus. Um, but students protesting uh, in the Me Too movement or graduate students um, calling out their professors who sexually harass them, um, many things like that are happening. And how, uh, even in the sports world, right, the athletes get trying to get paid or, or unionizing, things like that, right? There is a constant tension between students and administration. Um, and in the 70s and in the 60s, those administrations responded with the closed fist, um, with military uh, occupations with 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 uh, inserting uh, tension with led to violence. Um, you won't see that today, uh, at least until all the other options are f- forsaken. Um, but eventually, yes, there that tension will will face it off, and and I think that that tension is also um, rearing its head in high schools. Um, and so it is not just the college campuses. It's, it's, it's between students administrations, a lot of different places. And I think that that is uh, something that many students want to participate in these social protests and then see it in classrooms. That is the, the hallmark of higher education has been, it's not the real world or why are we learning any of this stuff? It's not gonna matter when I go outside. And so the, the, the push, especially by English professors is to show why it matters and what you can do in the classroom. Um, but that will be the, the things we remember. There might not be specific events or, or shootings or things like that, but there are constant um, events like that, that that have happened and that will continue to happen. Let's shift gears just a little bit. What are you working on now? What's the next project you're going to undertake? Oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> I yeah. know you're interested in kenosis and rhetoric. Yeah, um, uh, to be honest with you, right, uh, since uh, March of 2020, man, my library has been almost shut down. Um, oh, really? Campus library. I mean, they oh, were wow. literally closed for months. And then when they reopened, uh, the interlibrary loan system that I rely on, it was only open f- uh, for a few libraries. So, I mean, I couldn't get everything. And so, you know, just now I am getting back to um, 
uh, a reading for a project on kenosis. I'll talk about that with that is in a minute, but yeah, um, I'm lucky that 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 May 1970 came out when it did. It came out in in uh, May of last year. So I actually had a publication to during COVID, which is amazing for a lot of people. Right. Um, I will say I have another um, uh, publication coming up. I'm part of an edited collection um, <clears throat> out of um, I think it's Utah State Press. Um, there's a couple editors, and the the title of the book is called Guns and Rhetoric. Yeah. And so I wrote a chapter on a group called Turning Point USA, which is a conservative uh, college group that targets professors and specifically targeted me for my anti-gun violence rhetoric. And so really? I wrote a chapter on that. And so uh, that'll be out, they said, uh, by the end of the spring. I think it's going to be, an, uh, it might be an ebook, but I don't know. But it's an it's a edited collection, so I wrote a chapter there. I'm pretty, um, who is that? Who's editing? Is Lydia Wilkes editing that? Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, yeah. She and uh, Ryan, uh, I can remember. Scannell? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, so oh, yeah. I'm familiar um, with the, those folks. That's good. I'm excited to read that chapter for sure. Um, yeah. Um, can, but, yeah. Oh, sorry. Can yeah, we but, broach the stuff about Turning Point USA with you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is that off limits or something? No, I can no, talk? that's fine. I this is actually my first publication, academic publication on them, but I've written about them several different ways. So, um, what happened with you and your experience with Turning Point? Um, so, Turning Point USA is run by Charlie Kirk, who. Right. Um, <clears throat> It's a young, um, he's 27 now. But, Asshole. No. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll edit that, that, edit yeah. that part out. <laughs> uh, he uh, wanted uh, in 2016, 2015 to get his organization, which started in 2012, uh, a name and, and wanted to get it attention. So he started um, a professor watch list and that's what they call it. And there's a website called professorwatchlist.org and it takes mm -hmm. you to the turning point website. And they listed about a hundred professors around the nation whom had appeared in different uh, news uh, stories, conservative, you know, um, groups that targeted them as well, but they just put this all together and called it a watch list. And, and I was on it. And uh, the one article <clears throat> that they had used was a, an op-ed that I wrote in the Atlanta paper about campus carry. And, and I, and I wrote something about rhetoric and, and why words are different than violence, but how they're related a little bit on the evil book. And, and basically my position was, of course, we should not allow guns at any type concealed or otherwise on campus. And so they did a short little paragraph and put my picture on their website. I initially put my salary and of course put my um, contact information there. Um, and so uh, there, I think there was one other Georgia professor in that initial 100 group. And so it was a big news splash for them and the AAUP and any professor group that you can think of denounced it and a bunch of universities denounced it. A lot of professors wrote them and say, hey, put me on the list, you know, for whatever reason you want, things like that. Um, and of course, Turning Point USA um, in the last four years has, has been a, a political advocacy group specifically for um, President Trump, uh, Charlie Kirk was a, a big supporter of his and, and went around the nation uh, campaigning for him. Um, so that got then even more attention. Uh, and they have um, <clears throat> the their main um, avenue of reaching college students is events on college campuses, which I've been to twice. Uh, before COVID, Charlie Kirk toured the nation each semester and stopping at different places. He came to the University of Georgia twice uh, with Don uh, Trump Jr. Uh, his girlfriend, some other people, and basically, you know, uh, in a hall filled with people, and, and it's like a rally, like a Trump rally, uh, with different, you know, cliches. And there's always the antagonist and the people there that try to, you know, argue with him, and he often, you know, records that and 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 puts it on his website. Um, so there's those events, but all 
also, um, <clears throat> since COVID, they've been using the internet more. Uh, he is a big Twitter person. They have a lot of content on their webpage, on Instagram, on different platforms, and they were caught using a company in Arizona um, uh, in the fall, uh, basically what is described as a troll farm. They paid uh, teenagers and college kids to post things to create con uh, controversy and, and, and um, conversation to get um, <clears throat> their Twitter pages going. Um, so he has been um, temporarily suspended from Twitter at some point for posting some misinformation and he's posted other misinformation. I actually run um, or run, it's me, um, a medium uh, webpage that fact checks Charlie Kirk. Um, oh, yeah. And some media interviews about that. Um, and like I said, he's taken on much more role. He has his own radio show now, yeah. Salem Radio Network. And so he's he has a huge platform to do what he does, which is basically the organization is um, – spreading the lie that higher education is a liberal a leftist indoctrination camp and that professors not only just lie to you, but they attack America and they want to uh, indoctrinate you to socialism uh, and any of those things you have heard. Um, but that is uh, Turning Point USA. And I specifically wrote a chapter about their gun rhetoric um, in, in that book. And so my argument was that they combine Christian nationalism with a uh, conglomeration of the word freedom to talk about why you should carry guns more. And then specifically in some of their memes and some of their pictures, they use female uh, empowerment as part of their gun rhetoric. And I talk about that connection to Christianity and the religious rhetoric in that sense um, and, and talk about how it is detrimental to any type of debate, because in Christian nationalism, if God is on your side, you can't compromise with the other side. So there is no compromise with things that they say. Uh, rights come from God, specifically gun rights, and there is no limitation that should be allowed uh, by the government on where you can carry a gun. Um, and so that is one thing that I talked about in that chapter. Is your work not just fact-checking, Turning Point USA, but analyzing and focusing yeah, I mean, on no, is that I, somewhere I you're going fact checking i each each post that i title is, is debunk debunking charlie debunking. Kirk, but it is certainly more analysis at this point because i can't keep up with all the lies <laughs> i was also, thinking a lot of time man <laughs> but, but i mean there are plenty of other fact checkers out there but what yeah. i do do is try to um, provide some context uh, of the subject matter that he's that he's talking about, which is essentially fact checking, but also yeah. to to analyze him as a rhetorical object because he combines the Christian nationalism with the political rhetoric, and so it's an interesting combination of that. Um, he um, has does obviously promote his Christianity a lot and his religious beliefs, but. Initially, before Trump came along, he was a um, advocate of not uh, promoting culture wars, which are, which we've seen a lot lately. But as he's grown uh, closer to Trump and become a Trump uh, sycophant, he has promoted these culture wars much more so. I mean, the COVID thing has reignited those culture wars, yeah. uh, not just you know uh, opening up churches. I mean, he literally says, "Do not follow any of these lockdown rules," because uh, it is it is taking away from our freedom, which is obviously a, a culture term. Um, and so uh, to figure out. What he's about um, is not hard, but to but to figure out like how far he wants to take this. He's primarily college groups 
uh, you know, but he has this big radio show now and he primarily advertises to boomers on Facebook. And so he gets donors. And so he has a lot of different uh, pieces of his audience. And so I get a lot of questions from media people doing profiles on him on, you know, what is he going to do next? Where is he going to take this power? Yeah. Honestly, I think he's he wants to become the next uh, Rush Limbaugh because obviously uh, Rush Limbaugh is a big name, conservative radio, and sadly, you know, he is suffering from cancer and, and eventually, obviously, will pass away. But um, uh, you know, that's what I think Charlie Kirk wants. I don't think he wants to run for office. I don't think he wants to be an elected official because that is that that limits his 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 yeah. power. Uh, he certainly could do eventually what Trump did and, and, and have a brand politically, but he 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 wants to be the next rush and have that radio show. So the question then becomes is is what does he do with Turning Point USA? I mean, he is the founder and he's the president, but there are other people that do a lot of work on it now. Uh, where does he take it post Trump? Uh, it's all a bunch of questions, and 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 so he has, as he likes to point out, thousands of or not thousand, but by two thousand chapters, both in high school and in college campuses, and so that's the key: is how he can keep that going. Of course, University of North Georgia, I think, at some point had a chapter. I don't know if it's current, but they have they, their UGA chapter is the largest in the state, um, and they have several in the state, and so they're they're not um, unknown to people. You're filling me up with knowledge here, man. I don't know, <laughs> to be honest with you, but not just like on, on base level stuff either. Like, I'll be honest, I kind of always thought, I was like, yeah, this guy's going to run for political office. But when you mentioned the power- I mean, I could be wrong, but, up, you know. but- But your point is valid. The power he could be given up, you know, we've actually just, I think, seen that with Trump, you know, okay. and, and what he's trying to do post-presidency yeah. with, uh, with potentially being, getting back into- and who, who would give up a $300,000- salary at Turning Point USA and then millions in book uh, and all that. I mean, he could still do that as an elected official, but he, but he couldn't do the radio show. I mean, he, yeah. it would be, it'd, it'd be difficult. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So um, what else are you working on, man? What do you got going on this afternoon? We can uh, move towards a conclusion because we, we've only got an hour. So um, yeah, you know, uh, gosh. Uh, yeah. I'm teaching online this week, so I don't have much going on. Um, but uh, I did want to uh, talk a little bit about Kenosis. Um, yeah. I, I got to be it. honest. I looked up the word. I just want to say that for my listeners and yeah. for you. So you don't. Right. <laughs> I'm it not is that a uh, philosophical religious term that primarily means uh, limitation or humbleness or, um, you know, um, <clears throat> letting go of stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's different phrases. It primarily comes from a New Testament, a letter from Paul about Jesus being the incarnation, but it also has um, uses in Jewish religion and philosophical things. And so I'm trying to make it a rhetorical thing. Okay. And so my, my thing at this point is how to make rhetoric, um, more open, uh, vulnerable, um, open to change and not, uh, connected to an argumentative persuasion, um, aspect. And of course, uh, rhetoric has a lot of ethics involved in it. Right. And so um, I'm, I'm early on in it, but the idea is how do I make a kenotic rhetoric or rhetorical kenosis? And, and that's where I'm going with it. Um, uh, I'm primarily focusing on uh, um, Levinas, who uses the term every now and then. Uh, and I'm most interested in making a connection to um, <clears throat> the Catholic monk, Thomas Merton, um, who also talked about it in terms of contemplation and i want to connect that to um the ways in which we um do rhetorical invention but that's a hell of an elevator summary there 
Yeah, I was gonna. Well, the first it, it was, but the thing that stuck with me stuck with me was that you wanted to find a place where for for rhetoric to be vulnerable. Yeah, and uh, that struck me as. I don't know if you're going to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how do we make it um, less of a adversarial thing yeah. right? and, and more of a, um, you know, um, uh, and Levinas talks about being open to the other. And that's where I'm going with that. That's awesome. Civility, um, I think a little bit there. Well, I mean, that could be, you know, we do, we don't yell at each other or whatever, or we, we yeah. each agree to disagree. That could be a lot of different things. Uh, yeah. But uh, for now, I'm going to go back home um, and um, sit on the couch for a while. Excellent. You deserve it, man. Thank you so much for chatting with me. And uh, I'm looking forward to publishing this. Thanks so much. All right. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Matthew Bodie. Full disclosure, this is actually the second time we have talked, but I corrupted the audio from our first discussion during production. So thanks to him for coming back on and talking to me a year and a half later. Thanks. While Dr. Bodie was here to promote his newest book, you all should know that the Big Rhetorical Podcast is also a digital space for conference organizers, institutional host delegates, conference board members, and other event planners to promote their conference event or organization. We can talk about the CFP and conference-goer expectations, as well as a range of other topics relevant to your event. Are you an author with a recent publication like Dr. Bodie? Would you like to promote your book, monograph, special issue, journal article? Reach out to the Big Rhetorical Podcast. We want to collaborate with you. Finally, and I guess I'm going to employ a teaser here, next week's episode is one I have been eagerly anticipating, as we will have a major announcement to make. Get your share buttons ready and your retweet buttons ready. I can't wait to share this news with you, but alas, one more week. You can find more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and follow us on Twitter at the Big Rhett. Reach out to us and leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically.